Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. One of the most sobering statistics that I've seen in this whole epidemic is that people under 65 years of age with pre-existing conditions, which are virtually all lifestyle and diet-driven conditions, are at as high of risk for hospitalization as people who are over 65 with no pre-existing conditions. So if you're a 45-year-old person with type 2 diabetes, you have the same risk of being hospitalized as a 70-year-old or a 75-year-old that doesn't have any of those pre-existing conditions. And that, if that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. Everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Chris Kresser. He's a best-selling author and functional medicine practitioner who founded the Kresser Institute, which trains doctors and health coaches in evolutionary health practices. He was named one of the top 100 most influential people in health and wellness by greatest.com, and he's become known far and wide for his individualized, non-dogmatic approach to diet and lifestyle. Chris, welcome to the show, my friend. Tom, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dude, it's good to have you, man. I'm excited about this. So I've obviously seen a ton of footage um, on you and the things you talk about. Uh, I'm somebody who is really fiendish about health and wellness as it relates to just accomplishing what you want in life. So my last company was a nutrition company. And when I started the mindset stuff, people wanted to know why the protein bar guy was talking about mindset. Now that I'm full-time mindset, people are like, why am I talking about health? But to me, they're they're just inextricably connected. Um, how would you define sort of your overarching strategy when it comes to um, individualized notions of of getting it right, getting it dialed in? How do how do you think about people approaching it? Yeah, uh, great question. So, I mean, it's certainly true that we share a lot in common as human beings. You know, we're we're the same species. We have um, the same general anatomy and physiology. But it's also true that we have a lot of important differences. We have, uh, you know, different genes, different gene expression, different lifestyle, different goals, different health statuses. Uh, we live in different climates and environments, and all of that can affect what an optimal dietary approach is for a given person. And not only that, that will change over time with each person. So, for example, imagine someone who is a, you know, high-level athlete in their late teens and twenties, um, that would require a certain dietary approach, but then in their forties or fifties, they're a sedentary office worker. Um, uh, you know, they're no longer performing at a high level. And, and so that would be a totally different, uh, dietary need or situation or 
somebody who uh, develops a chronic illness, an autoimmune disease, their dietary needs would change versus what they might have been before that illness. So I think uh, a lot of the public health messages around diet um, are oriented around trying to come up with one ideal approach for everybody. And I think that's doomed to fail. Certainly, we can extract certain fundamental principles that apply to everybody as a baseline, and then using all of those characteristics that I mentioned before to create the uh, ideal uh, approach for each individual. Okay, so before we dive into some of the individual stuff, which you said some things in the intro, like climate, um, that I, I actually haven't heard people talk about before. So I'll be really interested to dive into that. But first, let's talk about those fundamental principles. So you talk about food quality. What what does that mean? Like, how does the average person, I'm going to guess you're going to say whole food, but I'd love to to really put a fine point on what you mean by food quality and what those general guidelines are. So um, let's kind of first distinguish between food quantity and food quality. So, and, and look, uh, to answer this properly, I have to actually look a little bit historically at dietary guidelines and what the recommendations have centered around has mostly been quantity. Quantity of certain macronutrients like carbohydrates or fat, you know, the low fat guidelines for 50 years, 40 years, American Heart Association, or uh, quantities of nutrients, like how much you know vitamins you should eat or minerals you should eat, uh, or quantities of specific foods like red meat or dairy products or you know saturated fats or trans fats. And uh, the problem with that approach is that it's led to what uh, food philosopher Gregory Scrinis calls nutritionism, which is this kind of myopic focus on the isolated components of food rather than the overall quality of the diet pattern. So by overall quality, you're right. We're speaking of, is this a, a real food? Is it something that grows in the ground or lives in nature it, or versus something that is in a bag or a box and is highly processed through the industrial food system? Is it nutrient dense? So nutrient density is a measure of the concentration of nutrients in food relative to its calories or weight and uh, we want to be focusing on foods that are highly nutrient dense that's a measure of quality in addition to you know whether it's a real food or a whole food so if we focus on foods that are high quality they're nutrient dense they're whole foods they're anti-inflammatory then in most cases not all and we can talk about the specifics of that that's like 80 or 90 percent of the battle right there. And then the remaining 10 or 20% is just twe the, the twisting of the dial to get the optimal approach for each person, maybe a little more carbohydrate or a little less carbohydrate or a little more of this food, a little less of that food, excluding those foods, including those foods. But people tend to focus on that 10 or 20% and not enough on the 80 to 90%. And certainly that's been true of the dietary guidelines. It's it is really interesting to me what happens in uh, food. So food has become a new religion. So back at Quest, we created what, dude, I cannot tell you. There are two times in my life where I created a piece of content that I did not think was controversial. I thought people were going to love it, and they lost their minds. One was when I wrote an article called It's All Your Fault. Looking back on that one, I get why people were triggered by it. I still agree. I think I was right, but I get why that one's triggering for people. 
And then the other one was that we put out a video that basically was like, hey, a calorie is not a calorie, right? It, it really matters where it comes from. And so the nutritional um, makeup of a Twinkie is very different than the nutritional makeup of a steak or something else, or even just match it, you know, macronutrient to macronutrient, a, a carbohydrate yeah. from like a potato or something like that. Sure. So, and people lost their shit, dude. It was crazy. You want to talk about something I did not think was controversial and people went bananas. So go a little bit deeper for me on um, why do you think people get so dogmatic about this? Why has this become the new religion? What do you think it is about the human psyche that drives people to be so fucking dogmatic about this stuff? Yeah, I, I like to look at it through the ancestral evolutionary lens, as I do with diet and lifestyle factors. I think it's evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology can really help us help shed light on some of these behaviors that, that are natural to humans, but don't seem that adaptive or helpful <laughs> at this point in our in our evolutionary history. Um, but humans are, you know, uh, we're tribal animals and um, the you know, it, we, it had to be that way, like in a natural environment, we couldn't survive, um, most of us probably very well for very long if we weren't, if we didn't have the support of the tribe. And so that means we tend to strongly identify with uh, a certain group of people and uh, because that makes us feel safe. And if we if we're, feel like we're apart from that tribe or we're excommunicated from that tribe, then we we feel essentially the fear of death, and uh, we don't and you know consciously go around thinking that way. I think it really comes down to like a basic survival instinct, mm -hmm. um, where I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my you know lot in with this group, and therefore everybody else is other, and it sets up that that natural conflict. Um, but diet is a is an area that. Um, is pretty universal. It applies to everybody. You know, we eat some of us two times a day, some three times a day, some more. And the public health ramifications of the diet, rec, you know, dietary advice and uh, that is given both by public health officials and now by bloggers, authors, and doctors and nutritionists and other experts has pretty profound ramifications, you know, for the health our health, not only individually, but also as a society. So I think it's a big deal. I think we're seeing the impacts of poor dietary choices in our country and elsewhere in the industrialized world um, that are literally threatening to bankrupt our country. And as we've seen now with COVID-19, that are uh, an issue of life and death. You know, one of the most sobering statistics that I've seen in this whole epidemic is that people under 65 years of age with pre-existing conditions, which are virtually all lifestyle and diet-driven conditions, are at as high of risk for hospitalization as people who are over 65 with no pre-existing conditions. So if you're a 45-year-old person with type 2 diabetes, you have the same risk of being hospitalized as a 70-year-old or a 75-year-old that doesn't have any of those pre-existing conditions. And that, if that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. Yeah, no joke. How much have you been paying attention to COVID-19? One of the things that I'm um, really intrigued to learn more about is the um, tie. They're saying that um, being obese is like a brutal factor in terms of mortality rate with COVID-19. Um, which is scary, but I don't understand the mechanism. I don't know if you know much about it. Well, yeah, I paid close attention to COVID-19. 
uh, I have seen articles about obesity. What's interesting is that in, in the studies that I've read that have looked at the existence of pre-existing conditions and their relationship with both hospitalization and, and death, obesity hasn't been quantified. They've looked, yes, they've looked at diabetes and blood sugar issues. They've looked at cardiovascular disease. They've looked at kid, chronic kidney disease. They've looked at smoking, but they actually haven't characterized obesity as one of those risk factors. Now, we know that many people who are obese, not everyone, but many people who, have, who are obese also have either prediabetes or diabetes. And one of the theories right now, this is not proven, there's a lot more research that's needed, is that one of the pathological, or perhaps the main pathological mechanism of COVID is that it interferes with oxygen deliverability, with hemoglobin's ability to deliver oxygen to the cells. And this is one theory why ventilators are not working as well as, as they would hope and may even be causing harm. Uh, you know, a very high percentage of people who are ventilated end up dying uh, and they're on ventilators for a much longer period of time than would typically be expected, is that the ventilator can't necessarily move the oxygen around. That's the job of hemoglobin. And if there's uh, something that's causing hypoxia or lack of oxygen, then, um, then it, it, a ventilator in that situation wouldn't necessarily help. Um, what I heard along and, those lines, tell me if this is um, what you've heard as well, is that basically the ventilator is working at a mechanical level. For somebody that has a traditional pneumonia, you're just so fatigued, you, you almost can't do the physical act of breathing anymore. And so the ventilator is going to help yeah. that. It's, it's going to force your lungs to move and for you to breathe. But if the problem is at a cellular level and you're just not able to, to shuttle the oxygen, essentially do the gas exchange, right, that um, it doesn't matter whether you're exactly artificially right. breathing or not. And the reason that diabetes is problematic, one reason and one you know, speculative mechanism here is that uh, in, in, in diabetes, hemoglobin becomes glycated with sugar. It becomes... So it's already there's, there's problematic. The, exactly. So the blood sugar levels are high. For really fast. Let me, that, let me interrupt you there. I'm just, super curious. So mm -hmm. are people that are struggling with diabetes, are they already having a problem with oxygen transport? Yeah, I think that's fair to say that that's, uh, especially when you see the levels of A1C get higher, that that's, that's one of the issues with diabetes. So, you know, we can also extend that to say that anything that interferes with oxygen deliverability, including anemia, which hasn't yet been measured as a contributing risk factor or pre-existing condition, is important. And this, of course, takes us back to the relevance of a nutrient-dense diet, because you know, the most common cause of anemia is iron deficiency anemia, which affects 2 billion people Whoa. around the world, 2 billion people, Whoa, mostly no in developing like in developing countries. But uh, here in the U.S., it's still a big issue, um, particularly among people who are malnourished and are, are undernourished and, you know, underserved communities. And then there are other causes of nutritional anemia, too, like B12 and folate deficiency. A lot of drugs. And this is a, another double whammy effect here. A lot of people who are, have diabetes take metformin, mm -hmm. uh, and metformin depletes uh, folate and B12 levels, which uh, can cause or contribute to a nutritional anemia, B12 macrocytic anemia. So I don't think we've even begun to get a grasp on all of the different ways that these mechanisms co-mingle uh, and interact with one another. So do they haven't quantified obesity yet? 
Um, they've obviously, as you said, looked at several different things. Do you have a rough order of like what are the most terrifying underlying conditions? I know smoking is brutal because of the way that it compromises the lungs. Yeah. Um, is that the worst thing that you could be doing? Is diabetes the worst thing? Like what are the, the most troubling underlying factors? Have they sort of ranked them? Different studies have found different results. Diabetes seems to be at the top of the list in most of the studies that I've seen, uh, which was actually surprising, you know, given that this is a, rest, a severe respiratory illness. I think um, we would have thought that uh, people with, you know, pre-existing lung conditions would rank mm. at higher risk for for complications. But if this is if this um, theory about hypoxia at a cellular level is true and diabetes impairs oxygen deliverability, then that makes sense, right? It's not just so much about uh, the lungs themselves, but about the whole body systemic response to the illness. But certainly people with chronic lung disease and, and including asthma. So some of the younger people who have died um, from COVID have been people with asthma that were otherwise relatively healthy. They didn't necessarily have diabetes or cardiovascular disease or anything else. They had and, and they didn't even necessarily have, you know, fully active asthma, like people who are immunocompromised. So uh, that can include people who've undergone, you know, chemotherapy or cancer treatment, um, you know, immune deficiencies, uh, prolonged use of corticosteroid drugs, like people with autoimmune diseases who've been taking uh, prednisone or something like that for a long time. Um, Chronic kidney disease, which I mentioned is another major risk factor, and liver disease. Even the CDC has said that severe obesity, with like people with a BMI over 40, um, is a risk factor. But I think it's likely that it just, you know, regular obesity, obesity with a BMI less than 40 could be a risk factor too, especially if it's showing up with diabetes or prediabetes. Mm. So going back then to B12, B12 is something that I hear you talk about a lot. I, I don't understand its role at all. Uh, I don't know what it does. Um, give me give me like a brief primer on B12 and why it matters so much. Yeah, so um, B12 is a, a critical nutrient that's involved in the, the uh, uh, in a lot of stuff, but uh, in this context that you're asking about, particularly in the maturation of red blood cells. So one way to think about it is like um, red blood cells go through kind of like a Benjamin, what was it, Benjamin, Benjamin Button? Button that, yeah. That, yeah, so where he starts out uh, old and gets younger over time. So red blood cells actually start out uh, large and then they get smaller over time like when they're when red cells red blood cells are born you know when they're first produced they're large and they get smaller over time and b12 uh is part of that process of maturation and if there's not enough b12 in this in the body then the red blood cells don't develop normally they they stay large and they're shaped like an oval rather than round like healthy blood cells and then that causes the, the bone marrow to make fewer red blood cells overall. And in some cases, it causes premature death of the red blood cells. So then uh, since they carry hemoglobin, hemoglobin what delivers oxygen, then you can develop what's called macrocytic anemia. Macro meaning large, large cell anemia, which is differentiated from iron deficiency anemia, which is microcytic, which means small, uh, uh, small cell anemia. So... Um, B12 is is um, mostly present in animal 
foods, true B12. Um, and so people who are vegetarian or vegan are at higher risk of B12 deficiency if they're not supplementing. But even people who eat an omnivorous diet can develop B12 deficiency, it's not because they're vegan by choice, but they're, they're just malnourished. But it's just, it's encouraging that we're starting to understand this a little bit better because once you understand the mechanisms better then the, the doorway for therapeutics, whatever they may be, is, is much more open than it is when you don't really even know what you're trying to accomplish mm. with the therapeutics. Well, let's talk about some prophylactics. So um, obviously people can supplement B12. What do you think about cardio? So I despise cardio. Um, I really only do cardio <laughs> when I'm really trying to get lean. But mm -hmm. legitimately about seven minutes ago, I thought the second this interview is over, I am going to a treadmill because if this is around the ability yeah. to um, lung capacity, red blood cells, um, getting move oxygen around. Exactly. Yeah. Getting my, my cardio on point uh, might be truly uh, something to really consider. I, I agree 100 uh, percent. I'm, I'm with you. I don't I don't love cardio. I'll do it if it's in the context of something that I enjoy doing. <laughs> like, I like to surf. I like to ski. I'm not doing any, obviously either of those right now. Um, I like to ride my bike. I think really anything that improves your blood flow right now. So even strength training, although it's not necessarily increasing lung capacity, it's probably increasing blood flow, which is a good, good thing to do right now. Um, of course, diet is critical always, but it's even more so now, especially if you're someone who's at risk for, you know, higher blood sugar. Uh, the reality, at least from what I am reading and seeing is, is that this is, you know, while the, we might reach the peak case, the number of cases from this initial wave in the next couple of weeks, COVID's not going anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, I wish that were not true. Um, <laughs> But it's it, this is likely going to be with us in some capacity for tw you know 12 to 18 months, and maybe even seasonally for you know until there's an effective vaccine developed. So, what this means is that it's not just a question of like what do you do tomorrow or in the next couple of weeks to prepare. It's what do you do for the next year or two and going forward to reduce your um, your risk. And one of the most important things for sure is to control your blood sugar. So if you're someone who's got pre-diabetic or diabetic level blood sugar, then, you know, taking action through diet to lower that blood sugar considerably and get it back into normal range, I would think is the probably one of the biggest ROI things you could do. Um, so that could be a, a low carb diet, a keto diet, um, you know, protein sparing, modified fast. There are a number of dietary approaches that have been proven to be effective for diabetes. Uh, but it also means strength training, getting enough sleep, managing your stress. Uh, all of these things are also really important when it comes to lowering blood sugar. Like just stress alone, which is hard to avoid <laughs> right now, raises cortisol. And what does cortisol do? What, what's its main job in the body is to raise blood sugar when it falls too low. Now, um, that was an evolutionary mechanism when we would go periods of time without eating and our blood sugar would drop. Cortisol would be there to keep it stable. But that backfires on us now when if most people's blood sugar doesn't ever fall too low and cortisol is just raising it um, uh, to unhealthy levels. So, those are, you know, I think sleep, physical activity, exercise, strength training, cardio, 
stress management, which is even more critical now than ever before, and uh, a, a diet that specifically a diet that manages blood sugar levels are probably the most important things people can be doing right now. Great advice. So one thing I want to um, follow up on is one of the things that I, um, I like most about your approach and the conclusions that you've come to is that it's based on being a clinician. Um, and one thing that I, I find drives me crazy about the current state of the different nutritional debates is, look, studies are important, man. I, I for sure, 100%, and I'm often very moved, moved to action, in fact, by studies that I read. So this is not me downplaying studies. This is me saying that there's so much individual variability. There's so much complexity that uh, of the study and the way the study is constructed of humans and just nutrition of biology that the idea that you're going to get the full picture for yourself from a single study is it's basically zero. So I have to imagine that there are things that you just see like, ah, fuck, this is anecdotal. I've had 10 patients, but it worked for all 10. I have a theory and I'm just going to roll with that. That to me is actually more powerful. It's more valuable when it's working in the real world with individual people whose lives have turned around um, than just the studies. What are some things that you see like just on a day-to-day -day basis? Maybe you're not even sure why it's working yet, um, but that you see in the trenches with patients um, that is interesting and that you're sort of pushing out now to more and more patients. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one thing that I, that I'm, I mean, this isn't like a new thing or anything novel, but uh, fasting is very interesting to me as a lever. Uh, by, by that, I mean all different kinds of fasting. So intermittent fasting, you know, uh, time restricted eating, alternate day fasting, longer periods of just water fasting, you know, like, fa or, or, or broth fasting, um, what is sometimes referred to as fat fasting, where, you know, somebody mostly fast, but might eat 200 to 400 calories of like coconut oil or something like that. So to increase the ketogenic response of the fast. Um, that would increase the ketogenic in, response? In some cases, yeah, especially oh. if it's MCT or coconut oil um, because MCT is ketogenic. Uh, there's a saying in medicine that fasting is the cure for all diseases. And if you look in the scientific literature, that's really true. Like there are lots of conditions that will um, completely reverse during un, in a fasted state. So when they say the that, that, give me the length of fast that they're talking about. So are we talking a five day water only? They're, three yeah, day? they're usually talking about like you know three to seven day fast. And what you can sometimes see in those situations is like pretty severe autoimmune diseases will like re almost completely reverse in some cases during that fasted mm -hmm. period. The symptoms really com almost completely go away. The problem is that fasting is also the cure for life <laughs> if you do if you do it for too long, right? So, um, I you know, but I think that this is a an underexplored area, certainly in conventional medicine. It's definitely like in my world, lots of people are exploring it and lots of people are doing it. But I've seen um, really powerful and significant changes. Um, in people who are doing intermittent fasting and more extended fasting, perhaps as much or more than just about any other intervention. So I'm really exploring that a lot more. Uh, you've probably heard of carnivore 
diet and like this increasing interest in people who are just eating meat and animal products and nothing else. I have a theory that's just a theory. It's not confirmed um, that the reason so many people feel better this day, people who have like severe autoimmune diseases or are going into remission and stuff like that is that it essentially works in a, in a similar way that fasting works on the gut where when you fast, there's no new input that's um, feeding any bacteria in your gut. And if you have a lot of pathogenic bacteria and microbes in your gut, they're going to start to die mm -hmm. because the substrate that they need to survive is no longer there. And um, meat and animal products get digested pretty high up in the small intestine and don't generally reach the large intestine, not to the extent that you know fibers and vegetables and plant foods do. And so I think a carnivore approach may be kind of mimicking some of the benefits of fasting, but allowing people to sustain that for, you know, perhaps indefinitely or why much is it longer that pathogenic um, bacteria or fungi or whatever? Why is it that there aren't pathogenic bugs that are fed through meat? Uh, it's just the case that, that, uh, Car carbohydrates, particularly, you know, complex carbohydrates that, uh, are linger, are not absorbed high up in the intestine are the primary substrate, the thing that most bacteria like, uh, and like to metabolize. There's something interesting in there and I don't know what it is. So this is obviously one of the things that we've explored with my wife, um, which was when she was really struggling. We basically, she was eating beef period, full stop. And that was when she had sort of the biggest um, leap. She hated her life. She didn't like eating like that at all. It was absolutely miserable for her from an emotional eating standpoint. Um, but it was the only thing that reduced her symptoms. Walk us through what you see as like the evolutionary landscape and how much it matters. Um, meaning like my wife is um, from a genetic standpoint from the Mediterranean. Um, I am mm -hmm. from, uh, Northern Europe. So does that, is that relevant or are we just talking hominids? Um, yeah, all, all great questions. And, you know, if we look at the study of human diet, um, you know, an anthropologically, we see lots of evidence that humans have, uh, for the, you know, as, as far back as we can see, have have eaten some combination of plant and animal foods. Now that the pro ex exact proportion of plant versus animal foods will vary from population to population. Sometimes it's skewed more heavily towards animal foods. Probably most times, if if you if you look at it as a percentage of calories, um, and then sometimes it's more heavily skewed towards plant foods. And going back to the question you asked early on about climate the percentage of plants versus animals that human populations ate was pretty strongly related to where they were relative to the equator. So um, populations that were closer to the equator tended to have a relatively higher percentage of plant foods that they consumed in their diet versus animal foods. And populations that were further from the equator tended to have the opposite. So I think that all matters, you know, climate, uh, geography, and then um, in terms of genes, 
I do think genes probably play some role. Uh, so one example would be lactase persistence. So lactase is the enzyme that breaks down lactose, which is the sugar in milk. And historically, as hunter-gatherers, we didn't produce lactase into adulthood. We only produced it while we were breastfeeding. And as soon as, you know, after that was finished, we didn't keep producing lactase because humans didn't consume milk at that point. But about 11 or 12,000 years ago, there was a random genetic mutation that allowed uh, humans to start digesting, you know, keep producing lactase into adulthood and digest lactose. And uh, that adaptation was selected for, meaning it conferred a survival advantage because milk and dairy products were a good source of calories and a good source of hydration, especially during times of famine. So that mutation spread around the world, but it spread unevenly. So it was very prevalent in the Middle East where it first started, and then it became prevalent in certain areas of Africa and most particularly Northern Europe. So up to like 95% or 97% of Scandinavians, for example, have Whoa. lactase persistence, this ability to digest lactose into adulthood, whereas only about 30 to 33% of people worldwide have it. So it's actually more common than not for people to not be able to digest lactose around the world, if you look at the world globally. But for someone with Scandinavian heritage, it's almost certain that they can digest milk into adulthood. So the, you know, on the genetics, there's also other, you know, there, there um, uh, other genes, like there's one that um, may predict our response to starches. So um, AMY1 is a salivary amylase gene that is correlated uh, with uh, you know, people who come from populations that historically had a high starch intake have higher levels of this gene. And it may suggest that they might do better with higher starch intake than someone that comes from a population that has a lower intake. Uh, so those are just two examples. There are many more, uh, but I think genes do play some role in what determines the optimal individual approach. So if somebody like my wife, for instance, who again is Mediterranean, so if she's trying to rebuild her, um, her digestion, uh, the whole microbiome, mm -hmm. the um, mycobiome, microbiome, like the, the whole shebang, is it just like, oh, the standard Mediterranean diet like that, that's exactly what applies or... Um, how do you sort of group people? Are there a nearly infinite number of groupings or do they sort of fall into five different camps? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I, I think although genes do play a role, I think people's um, like current health status and um, existence or non-existence of, um, you know, certain conditions can play a bigger role. So let, let me use an example, you know, let's say someone has significant gut issues that are caused by SIBO, uh, which is bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, basically bacteria in the place where it shouldn't be. And then that bacteria is fermenting carbohydrates in the small intestine. That ferment, you know, when bacteria metabolize carbohydrates, they produce either hydrogen or methane gas, maybe hydrogen sulfide as well. And those gases, um, can kind of wreak havoc in the intestine and it can also, that condition can interfere with nutrient absorption. It can cause a low grade inflammation, et cetera. So if that condition is present, even if genetically speaking, that person might thrive on a more Mediterranean type of diet, they're probably not going to do well eating certain things that are prevalent in that diet, like legumes or grains, 
or you know, or certain types of carbohydrates that are difficult to digest and break down because um, of that condition. So in other words, that condition is sort of interfering with what a normal genetic response might be to a set of foods. So what does that experimentation protocol look like? So you've got things like the Whole30, um, you know, elimination diet. Um, how do you get people who are struggling? Um, do you have just sort of a general protocol for uh, people to go through? It starts with testing. Um, I'm, I, I'm a big believer in test, don't guess. So at our clinic, we have a whole case review process that includes a lot of different testing. So it's a very comprehensive blood panel. So much more in depth than what you would typically get at a, you know, your, through your primary care doctor. We're looking for blood sugar, of course. We're looking at metabolic function. We're looking at like comprehensive metabolic panels. So that includes like a, the liver aminotransferases, AST, ALT, GGT, bilirubin. We're looking at uh, some of the kidney function markers, phosphorus, potassium, uh, creatinine, EGFR, um, of course, the blood sugar markers, lipid status. And then we're looking at all the hormones, nutrient status, uh, immune markers. But then we're doing extensive gut testing. So we're doing a stool test, and that's to look for undetected parasites, which are actually more common than might, most people might believe. Fungal overgrowth, um, which until recently was sort of poo-pooed in the conventional medical world, but there's now been several studies correlating fungal overgrowth with IBD, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and IBS. Um, and, and then we sometimes will do a urine organic acids panel, which looks at some um, byproducts of, of normal metabolic processes and also bacterial metabolism that give us insight into what's happening in the gut. And then we might do, uh, we also will typically do a test of, for the HPA axis, looking at stress hormone production like cortisol and DHEA. Um, and depending on the patient, we might add a few other tests because that's then what allows us to answer the question that you're asking. Where do you even start? How do you know which diet, which approach is going to be best in that case? And there's kind of a rough way that I sometimes break it down when I'm talking to patients or when I'm training other clinicians. So... There's one group of people, which is the majority, the, the largest group of people whose conditions are primarily diet, lifestyle, and behavior driven and can be primarily or almost or exclusively addressed just by modifying those factors without ever seeing a doctor. So you take the sort of average American who's eating, you know, too much highly processed and refined food is sedentary is not sleeping enough and is, you know, overwhelmed with stress, you know, they might end up with diabetes, prediabetes, obesity, irritable bowel syndrome, et cetera. But I could have that person just work with our health coach and nutritionist. And if they were able to follow the guidance being given and, and stick with it, I would say in, in many of those cases, 80 percent or more of their symptoms would go away and they would basically be back to normal. Then you have another uh, category of patient, which is mostly who I work with just because this is my background of suffering from a complex chronic disease. And it's the kind of patient that I attract is patients with complex chronic illness. And many of my patients, for example, are extremely educated about 
diet. They're following not only a, a you know whole foods diet, they're following some very advanced variation of that, you know, like a ketogenic diet or autoimmune paleo protocol or low FODMAP diet or something like that. They're doing, they're sleeping, or at least they're trying to, they're, um, you know, they're do, doing everything right and they're still sick. And those people will often require functional medicine kind of approach where they get the testing and then they get more advanced treatment. Uh, and it's harder for them to just do that on their own. They're already doing all of the right diet and lifestyle and behavior things and they're still sick. So that's like the, the most meaningful distinction in what I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Because that has implications in terms of how do we design public health interventions? If most of the people are in that former category, then it's not about like more doctors or more medicine. It's about more support for people making these critical diet, lifestyle, and behavior changes. So this is where like health coaches uh, can, I think, make a huge impact on the future of healthcare and on preventing and reversing disease because most disease is diet and lifestyle driven. All right. So give me the ultimate diet and lifestyle. If I want to live amazing, I want to feel good, longevity, high energy. Um, what, what does my diet, my lifestyle and supplementation, if that's a component, what does that look like? Well, I would say, you know, all the fundamental principles we've talked about for sure. Um, the, you know, nutrient dense, whole foods, anti-inflammatory diet that's tailored for you based on your health status and also your activity levels. So for example, if you're extremely active, doing a lot of highly glycolytic activities like mixed martial arts or CrossFit or something like that, you're probably going to need more carbohydrates. If you're not doing those things and you're trying to lower your blood sugar and deal with, um, you know, weight gain or insulin resistance and probably lower carbohydrate intake would work. And then we've got, you know, seven, eight hours of sleep a night, um, physical activity. Again, that has to be tailored to you based on what your goals are and what's happening for you, stress management. And then I would add a few other things that I think are really critical and often overlooked. So one is social connection. And this is difficult now for us, right, during COVID-19. And I think all people are feeling the lack of, the, of it in a way that they may have never um, fully realized. Lack of social connection in, in study, one study was shown to be a greater risk factor for early death than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Whoa. One of, one of the most mind-blowing studies I've ever seen. But humans are social animals. And when we lack social connection, it has very real measurable effects, um, not just on our emotional and, and psychological well-being, but on our physical health. Um, and then another is spending time outdoors, which again, if you look at it through the ancestral lens, that's something that we, we lived outdoors 24-7 for most of our evolutionary history. And um, being outdoors, it's, it relaxes us, it reduces stress. Uh, sunlight produces vitamin D, it increases nitric oxide, which increases blood flow. Um, and it, it has a regulatory effect on the immune system. So there's so many benefits to being outdoors. Uh, and then lastly, uh, cultivating more pleasure. So people often raise their eyebrows when I, when I say that, because they think, wait, we, we live in this hedonistic society that's totally devoted to pleasure. How can you say that? I would disagree with that. I think our, our society is dedicated to distraction 
um, which is different than pleasure. Pleasure is a is an experience that's felt in the whole body when you're fully present and aware of what's going on. There's the release of endorphins happening during pleasure. Give me Whereas, give me some of the most pleasurable, joyful things that you do. Uh, so uh, surfing is definitely uh, pleasurable. Um, massage is great. Uh, you know, touch is one of the things that can do that the most, um, both for me and for everybody else. Uh, sex, dancing, um, you know, really kind of uh, fully uh, joyful experiences. Listening to music brings a lot of pleasure. Um, all of that's important because it produces chemicals that we um, need actually to to thrive and live well. So that's that's my prescription. That's pretty good. I dig it. Um, I think you're right. I don't think a lot of people talk about joy. It's an interesting distinction between distraction and pleasure. Uh, that's very interesting. In fact, I know you've meditated for a long ass time. Um, yeah. Where where do you put that in the everyone should try? Yeah. I don't think I would be here if I, if I hadn't had that, my meditation practice, it's just gotten me through so many challenging periods of my life and um, enabled me to function and thrive in situations where I, I think I would have otherwise fallen apart. But, um, for me, meditation is really about increasing our awareness, our ability to observe what's happening internally, our sensations, our thoughts, our feelings, and what's happening externally, um, without, uh, getting, being becoming totally reactive to those internal or external stimuli. So it's it's about cultivating the witness perspective, ability, uh, being able to witness what's going on, and then make a conscious choice about how we're going to respond rather than just a knee jerk reaction. And that's useful in any area of our life, whether we're in an intimate relationship and we're having a conversation or an argument with our partner, or whether we're in an extremely threatening and even life threatening situation you know, uh, or with lots of fear and uncertainty and loss of control as we are with COVID-19, that ability to stay present, take one moment at a time is really critical, I think, to uh, our survival and, and, and thriving in, in even in difficult circumstances. Well said. If people want to find out more about you, um, all the things that you teach and offer, where should they go? Uh, chriscresser.com is my main website. Lots of free eBooks there linked to my podcasts and lots of articles. And then for my training programs, the, the health coach training program I mentioned, and we also have a 12 month functional medicine training program for doctors and other clinicians. Those are at cresserinstitute.com. Awesome, man. Dude, thank you so much. This is fun. I love your even keel approach. I love that you're not dogmatic. Um, I love that your thinking evolves. Um, it's yeah, it's incredible. Thank you so much for spending time Tom. with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. Of course, dude. Well, hopefully this will be the first of uh, many to come in the future. I uh, will certainly be keeping an eye on everything that you put out. Uh, I've loved it so far. So thank you, man. Look forward to it. Yes, thanks. Definitely. Take care. All right, everybody. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.